is the place to. But he does take the idea that God created the world out of nothing as a premise. Okay, sorry. But that's about the only premise he takes. Everything else then is developed from there. Okay. Okay, so yesterday we learned the analogy that even though all the parts of the body are different, that difference doesn't come from the father, that difference comes from the mother, right? The father's contribution gives over the essence, and that essence is found everywhere in the body. But it, the mother develops that and gives it its existence, and that essence has a different manifestation in the brain versus the eyes versus the toenails, which is the lowest one. Right. Now, that also leads to another important conclusion, which is what, what, what enables the human essence to really be found in any part of the body is that it maintains its connection with which part of the body? The brain. Right? And since the brain contains the human essence the same way the father's brain contains the human essence, right? um, there's, a, there's a kind of continuity between the father's brain and the child's toenails. And it would work like this. Right? That the toenails of the child are connected to the father's brain, uh, to the child's brain. The child's brain is basically a duplication of the father's brain right? on that basic level of humanity. And so the humanity can be seen as going from the father's brain into the child's toenail, right? And that happens via the father, via the child's head. Yeah. With toenails in particular. I don't know how much I want to get into toenails in particular. There is a, there is a, there is a deep Kabbalistic reason why he uses the example of toenails, but we're not going to talk about it here. That's just the example he uses. For us, we can use that as a generic example. But yes. I, as opposed to like arms and legs. Mm-hmm. Um, with like, like toenails and hair mm-hmm. in particular, um, and, and fingernails, I guess those things, I don't immediately understand how they're connected to the brain at all. As in, I don't feel them. I can't move them. Like they, they seem to be connected to either my fingers, my toes, or my scalp, which are connected to my brain. So very, very briefly, they grow. And they are part of your appearance. And your brain ascribes a, very, a, a tremendous amount of value to their appearance as part of yourself. Okay? Wait, what? Our brain? Yes. That's more our mind, you're saying, right? Yeah, remember, remember in, in the way, remember, the, the perspective that Chassidus that, that works from is that, is that the human being is, is, is a mingling of the two things, of the, of the physical and the spiritual, right? So brain, mind are kind of interchangeable. The same way, the same way you would say that um, the cup and the paper are somewhat interchangeable because the cup is made of the paper, the paper is the cup, it's the same thing. Just two ways of describing the same thing. Yes, it cares a tremendous amount. Specifically about nails? Not as opposed to other things, but also. Oh, okay. Yeah. Also, not, 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 as, not as opposed to like your, yeah. your nose or your eyes, no, right? But that, right, but that doesn't, that does not extend to say, um, that doesn't extend to say, um, I don't know, like the ground outside of you or the ground you're standing on or things like that. Now, there is an interesting middle ground which Chassidus discusses, which is jewelry and clothing that has a social significance. And yes, that's discussed in Chassidus. That's kind of a middle ground, and we're not going to talk about it right now. Okay. Yeah. Yes? If you get your like, humanity essence from your father, then would a psychopath like, that doesn't have like, the same idea of humanity transfer like, the corrupt version? Well, well no. no, 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 no. Because, because, because we're right when we're talking about remember when we're talking about human beings, the essence is the the essence of a human being is going to is going to be the essence of the human being is what makes them human. The fact that let me give you an example. Yeah, if a computer doesn't have the ability to show empathy, does not mean there's something wrong with the computer? If there's a human being who has no ability to experience empathy, there's something wrong with the human being. Okay, but by, by saying there's something wrong with it means you have, you're saying this is a human being. They have the essence of humanity, but that essence of humanity is somehow broken in its manifestation. This is very important. When something 
when something is not good or broken or deficient, that's not a deficiency on the level of its essence. It's on the level of its existence, right? In other words, essence is the ideal that, that you're measuring it by. So the very fact that you think that there's something wrong with a sociopath is because you actually think that they have humanity, right? This is why many people, including myself, object to calling Nazis animals. Nazis are people. And if they're people, then what does that make them? Bad people, right? But, right? Because people, part of being a person is to have a sense of right and wrong. And if you can ignore that sense of right and wrong, distort that sense of right and wrong, corrupt it, whatever word you want to use, do some kind of metaphysical violence to that sense of right and wrong in your own, in your own self, that is not just like you're not a human being. No, that's your, you, you are, you're a human being who's gone horribly wrong. Right? Whereas, you know, another kind of being, I, don't, I should measure that kind of being against what its essence is. Right? So, the, right, so to, to use the example that Chassidus uses, which is to say a, a blind father can have seen children because his blindness is not part of his essence. It's just that that aspect of what it is to be human isn't manifest because something went wrong in the way it was brought out or it was brought out fine then something damaged the body. So the differences between things are on the level of the existence, not on the level of that. As of the same kind of thing. So with the son, or the daughter, the child, their humanity is their human, they're human. But how humanity is manifest is different in different parts of the body, but it all does depend on those different parts of the body being still attached and connected to the brain. That's where their proper place, and the degree to which that they're properly connected is they'll be able to be more human. That's of course assuming that their brain is doing a good job of instantiating humanity, which, as you bring the example of a sociopath, might be questionable. Yes. So man's contribution of the essence has no way to be lacking. Correct. It's also worthless. I would like to point out. Right. That's the double-edged sword. Right. Is it's like you know it's like the way I like to think about this is the ideal cup is the most worthless cup in the world because the ideal cup is the right size, the right shape. Always. But if it's always the right size and it's always the right shape, then what shape is it? Like, what if you need a cup that's this big? What if you, sometimes you need a cup that's this big? Sometimes you want a cup that's heavier, something, right? In reality, is there such a thing as an ideal cup? Like a cup that you could actually use? Like, or take anything, it doesn't have to be a cup. The, the ideal, I don't know. Pencil. The ideal pencil, right? The ideal pencil, is it thin or it's thick? It depends what you're doing, right? So when you talk, this is the thing, is that when you talk about, the, if you talk about the thing in its ideal and its essence, it also becomes, it becomes unreal. It, it ceases to have any tangible existence. So what makes a pencil a pencil, what makes all pencils pencils, is this ability to write. Uh, I don't know if pencils have a distinct essence versus pens, but let's just... But, what? Erasable pen. Okay. I would, I, would say, I would say probably an artist, an artist would argue that there's more to a pencil than the ability to write because of the way graphite works. But okay. But then the thing is, when you actually want to then cash in on that and bring that out in reality and use it, it turns out you, like, have you ever seen someone who, an artist who works just in pencil? Mm -hmm. I took an art class. How many pencils do they have? Why? Because once you bring it into existence, there's no such thing as an ideal pencil. Each pencil is good for some things and... Like golf clubs. Like golf clubs, same thing. <laughs> right? That's why Big two different club. cups. So, so this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the double-edged sword, which is that what, what, if you're contributing the essence, if you're contributing the essence, it's never lacking. It's the whole essence. But on the other hand, essence on its own is meaningless. It's worthless. It's garbage. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have anything to it. And if you're bringing something into existence and making it tangible, well, now you're going to get differences and things can go wrong. But what's the upshot? You actually have something that will, you know, in the case of a person, can actually be there and navigate around the world. In the case of a cup, something can actually hold something. In the case of golf clubs, something that you can play golf with. So there's a trade-off here. If you want to talk about things in their perfect ideal essences, that's fine. But now you're talking about stuff that doesn't really exist. And if you want to talk about stuff that, doesn't really, that does really exist, then it's always going to be limited. And it's always going to be flawed. And it's always going to have trade-offs. 
And some might be overall better than others, but there's nothing that's going to be ideal. Because everything, every, every, everything has a, everything has a, a trait. I'll just give you a simple example. Even if you take something like the ability to hear really well, which would seem to be a good thing, there's a trade-off. If you can hear or any of your senses are really highly attuned, what's the trade-off? Where, where is that going to create problems? The other one's there. Maybe, but even just without yeah, hearing, it would be annoying. Right, there's all sorts of things that are annoying. Like, like there's all sorts like, like some people they can hear little background noises and they find it annoying. Other people can't, and it's like perfectly fine. Everyone hears the drilling. The drilling is one of them. Wait, what drilling? Yes. Um, but I'm kind of confused about the idea that the essence is, is worthless. Um, it's worthless on its own. Because, like, you can't have any kind of existence without an essence. That's true. Okay. And, and that's true. Which is why we don't think of this as a, com- as a competition between essence or existence. Okay. And we don't think of it as a competition if we're between the male and female. We okay. think of it as they're supposed to come together as a unified whole. Okay. But, <laughs> it's, you know... No. Have I ever told you about Leonardo da Vinci? Oh. So Leonardo da Vinci had a, had a trait... Which is that? I always think of DiCaprio. <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci was was in his time a very unpopular man. One of one of the many reasons why he was unpopular is because he left a lot of people very annoyed with him for breaking promises. He was contracted out to make certain things, make different pieces of artwork or engineering, and what would happen was is that once he realized that his idea could work, he would have come with these new creative ways of doing things. And he would start the project. And when he realized that it could work, then he got bored and was no longer interested in the project. So if you hired Leonardo to like paint a mural, he would come up with this really new creative way of like how to paint the mural that no one had ever done before. He would start, he would see it would work, and then he would leave. And he just went through Italy doing this. And he got a really bad reputation because of this. So here's a person who like really didn't care if things existed in any sort of tangible way. It was enough that in principle it was true. So all he cared enough was to test the theory. Oh, it seems to work. That's good enough. Right? Um, but that's the idea, is that the more you go into the ideal, the more you go into the essential on its own, yeah, it becomes more and more perfect and more and more ideal and more and more flawless, but it also becomes more and more worthless. So what does Hasidus love talking about essence? It doesn't. It loves talking about bringing the essence down into reality. It's not about essence at the expense of existence. It's about having the existence instantiate and reveal the essence. Right? Or to put it in the context here of male, male and female, it's not about male, it's not about female. It's about if the females bring making things exist in a tangible way, like gestation, and the male is supposed to be contributing the essence, it's not about one versus the other. It's supposed to be coming together as a whole. Right? So... If you have an actual child, they will have actual, hopefully, if they're healthy, they have actual eyes and actual ears, and those eyes and ears are different from each other, and they probably also have, they're different from other people's eyes and ears. And that's the price you pay for it being actual, which means it, it has its limitations, it has its deficiencies, it has its vulnerabilities, but that's what turns it from just being the essence of humanity to an actual living, breathing human being. Okay? But now each one of those parts of the body only is still part of that living, breathing human being as long as it maintains a connection with the house of the essence in the body, which is the brain. That's what we said in the analogy. Now we're going to do it all in how to do with the godly soul. Okay. We are at where it says, so too as it were. That after the parentheses, that were there's a parentheses that ends with brain. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, as it were. so as it were, so as it were, it is actually true of the root of every nefesh, ruach, and neshama in the community of Israel on high. In descending degree by degree through the descent of the worlds of Atzilus, I'm going to explain these ideas of these worlds later. Atzilus, Bri, Etzira, and Asiya, which are in English emanation, creation, formation, action, from his wisdom. As is written, thou hast made them all with wisdom. 
that the nefesh, ruach, and Hashem of ignorant and unworthy come into being. So where do all the souls come from? They all come from the same place, this wisdom, this chachma, this, which would be analogous to the person, the brain, which houses the essence. And the difference is in how they're developed and brought out. So the world, so it's like this, if, going back to the analogy, if it's the mother's womb that makes different parts of the body different from each other, then it's these, quote, four worlds that make different souls different from each other. But the difference is not because in essence they're different, but because that essence is being manifest and developed and articulated through these worlds. And different souls bring out that godly essence in different ways. Okay, so that's the first half. Nevertheless, they remain bound united with a, in, with a wonderful unity with their original essence and, and entity, namely the extension of the supernal wisdom. Inasmuch as the, as the nurture and life of Nefesh Ruch Neshama of the ignorant are drawn from the Nefesh Ruch Neshama of the saints and the sages, the heads of Israel in their generation. And that's the second point in the analogy, right? What keeps our hands, our eyes, our toenails all part of our humanity is that they're connected to our brain. So what keeps the godliness of all of the souls of all of the different Jewish people, their connection to which souls? Going back to the hierarchy, the head souls. Okay. So there's two aspects of the analogy, and I want to separate them out. One is the process by which you take one thing and make it many. Right, That's like in gestation. And then there's the second part, what keeps the many all united as one. So during gestation, what happens? You take the one essence and you divide it into different limbs and organs and parts. And then what keeps it all together as one is that all those different limbs, organs, and parts are all united with, are all connected still to the brain. Did I lose you on that one? If your hand is not attached to your brain, there's a problem, right? right? And who has the problem, the brain or the hand? The hand, but um, I guess maybe where the break is how, I know we talked about this, but how the essence of someone can be transferred to, like, directly to the brain. Like, is the, the essence is comes strictly like, directly to, to the brain. Yes. No, okay. This is why I want to... Can I have a marker? We'll do this as a flow chart. It's a little bit easier. Okay? Why did you just chart down? The worlds make souls different from what? each other. I don't know. That's what isn't funny. Okay. But the souls inherently are different. It's just through the four the worlds, they manifest differently. Okay. Through... Souls manifest themselves differently. Mm -hmm. Well, whatever. It's not that different. DNT. Okay. And some good. Okay. What? I feel like you say you're good. That's how I say something. Like, That's how you spell brain. Yeah, you did it right. Okay. Okay. That's the. That's. This is how you go from father. This is the beginning of the process. This is the end of the process. It's called a baby. physical things steps. But now if we look at it if we look at it more metaphysically, what is contained in the father's brain? It's a choice of words. Okay. And what is the drop conveying to the womb? That same essence, right? Okay. Okay. Now 
What, what is the womb doing? Is the womb adding a new essence? Is the womb adding new elements? Or is the womb saying, this essence, as wonderful as an ideal humanity, mm-hmm. it's actually not an actual human being, because actual human beings have to be like tangible stuff. And so this has to become given some kind of an existence. Right? So what is the womb contributing? Form, tangibility, what we call, right? We talk, right? What we call, what we call the existence of something. So the womb, so, right? So the, at, at the, so what is the womb is, is giving that existence. To the essence, right? So existence means it's tangible, it's relatable, it's interactable. Okay, but now when we go back here to this level of different limbs, on the level of essence, are these limbs all different? It's like this a dog and this a tree and this a cow? No. It's all the same essence. It's the original human essence, right? So that essence is all the same, but do the different limbs express that essence differently? Yeah. Yeah. Why can't we just be a bunch of brain cells? Why did God not do it that way is a separate question. Right now we're just doing what actually is the case. So, are all souls the same or are they different? And the answer is? Both. Both. Because what makes them different is on that level of existence, which was the contribution of the womb. Or actually, not talking about. What makes, what, what are, all parts of your body are different because their existence. Existence is the way something is present in the world. The way you are present in your eyes is via seeing. The way you're present in your nose is through smelling. The way you're present in your feet is through tap dancing. I don't know, I just made that up. But okay. But, it, but on the level of essence, it's all the same. It's you as a human being are there. It's you and your fingers. It's you and your eyes. It's you and your ears. It's you and, right? Even in some weird way, even in your hair and your toenails. Okay. So if I look at this, is there any change? No. On looking on the level of essence, there's no change. So that means every part's the same. But if I look at what's happening, the difference, I say that difference is coming because of the contribution of the womb, of actually changing that into something tangible. And as it becomes tangible, it has different elements and different parts to it. Mm-hmm. Now, so when we talk about our souls, is my soul less godly than Moshe's soul? Well, say my soul, its essence is the same as his because all the, the essence all came from one place. Does my soul manifest godliness in the same way as Moshe's soul? No. No. But that difference was the result of the metaphysical supernal womb, which, which are the four worlds. When you're talking about a, a human connecting to the essence of, of itself through the brain, and that's what I was... That's, that's why I want to split this part. So right now we're just talking about that the essence is the same because it all comes from the same source. Okay? Is anyone confused about this half of it? It's the second half that's a little bit trickier. Though. We would talk. What, what I just said now? Nope. I'm good. You good? Okay. <laughs> now... Oh, yeah. So can I just ask what the thing that you said the top like in other words you're using the word womb because that's what we know but like you could use it in the same way existence to the drop. Well, I, if I if I change the words from their biological words and give them like fancy metaphysical <coughs> words, I would say like this. I would say there is that which houses the essence, that which conveys the essence, and that which gives the essence its existence. Okay. And then there is the existence of that essence, right? Except when you talk about human beings, it's the brain of the father, the drop, the mother's womb, and then the different limbs of the child. Okay. Now, so, so if you, if you, so now, in Kabbalah, there is a thing that houses God's essence. We call that the sphere of Chachma, right? There is something that conveys that essence comes out of Chachma. That's known as the, 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 the drawing down of that chachma. There is something that functions as the giving that essence existence, which is analogous to a womb, we call that the four worlds. And then there's the different souls of the Jewish people. Okay. Sorry, 
So Chachma, what what is this? Chachma houses God. Talk about spiritually. It's whatever is coming from Chachma into the four worlds. There's something conveying the essence into the four worlds. I, we didn't give it a name. Okay. Okay. Um, it, it it it's usually just it's usually um, called uh, a, a drawing down from Chachma. Is there like a forming of souls? There is a process of forming of souls. Yeah. No, it must be like. But I want to be. I'll be very clear. Right now, in chapter two, he's only focusing on the major points here to understand how all the souls are godly, even though they're all different. In fact, this is a much more complicated process. Just like we all understand that procreation with people is much more complicated, right? If you took like any kind of class, I don't care from which perspective, from purely biological to like ancient, you know, you know, medical to like medieval classism, and you're like, this is how procreation works. They're like, um, I mean, it's not wrong, but it's like <laughs> it's missing a lot of stuff going on, right? Okay, similarly. The way Chassidus understands, the Kabbalah understands the whole, this whole process of duplicating your essence through the male-female interaction is also more sophisticated. What's going on spiritually, the souls is more sophisticated. He's only giving you the basic notions. So, the, again, the father's brain houses the human essence. The drop conveys that is to the womb. The womb doesn't add something new. What it does is gives it its existence. And that's what makes it real, that's what makes it tangible, and it's that um, when you look at it as, as an existing thing, different limbs are different, but if you think about it in terms of their essence, all limbs are the same. They're all part of one human being. So it's the same, but different. And so to your soul, and my soul, and Moshe Rabbeinu's soul, and Avram's soul, they're all the same, and yet they are very different. That For the sense. same reason. Yeah? Right. I don't understand how a any level of a soul can be determined by a sia if once it's here, it's already... So there is a myth, which is that we live in the world of a sia. We live in... We, 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 we live... We live in what's known as the, the, this world, or the world of physical asiya. The bottom. The bottom. And you're right. By that point, it's already fully formed. But there's a step before that called the spiritual of the Messiah, which is what he's referring to here. Oh, okay. Now, sometimes in the we don't make that differentiation, but here we definitely wouldn't make that differentiation. So it would be wrong to say by the higher world, because the higher world of Asiya is what's the, a determinant, it's not the lower world. Not the physical, no. In this sense, it's all four spiritual worlds are. I want to explain, but right now I want to group it all together in one thing. They all give existence. They all develop it. Yeah. Is there an amount of time that this takes? Yes. Do you want to know? The process starts. <laughs> the process starts on Shemini and Saras, and it ends on Shvishal Pesach. And if you ask me what that means, I will not explain it to you right now. But you asked how much time it takes, so I told you. Now. <laughs> Wait. Are you happy now? What? No, it's not. Okay, now, before we move on, I'm going to give you a few more analogies where you see this similar dynamic, okay? Do I have an eraser? Yes, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay. really close to the whiteboard. Is there a way to, like... The is really close. I told you. One second, one second. Let me... Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. Just some room. Okay. 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 Hello, listeners. Hope you're enjoying. <laughs> no, there's, a, there's another E in between the B and the L. And that's a J. Or, or is it a project or a product? <laughs> Yeah. 
product, right? You want it's a you, yeah. Okay. So, now, this analogy is not nearly as precise, but it illustrates the basic rundown. The inventor is the one who has the original idea, idea right? That's something that, whatever this new thing is, whatever makes it what it is, where is it originally housed? In the inventor. And then the inventor sends a proposal containing his idea to the development team. And what does the development team do? Make it makes it a reality. And in making it a reality, there's now a bunch of different aspects to it. But all those different aspects are really just part of the same original idea. Okay? So we can think of the development team. It functions in an analogous way to a womb. The proposal is kind of like the drop. The inventor is kind of like the brain of the father. Okay? I can go on to other examples if you want more examples. But can you add like the toenail and brain part of the analogy? Well, for instance... Okay, let's come up with an actual, the, pro, the, the inventor comes up with an idea, let's say, I don't know, um, the, let's say the phonograph, right? The idea that you can record sound into like, yeah. and into records. Okay. okay, but here's the thing. Now, in this case, it happens to be the same guy that did the whole stuff, but let's ignore that right now. So the inventor has this idea, they send the proposal off to the development team, and the development team now actually wants to make, you know, a phonograph, but now they realize, well, you know, there's all sorts of interesting issues, like for instance, how fast should it go? Should the records be cylindrical, like the original ones were, or should they be discs? How wide should this be? How thick should it be, right? And now, can you have it now, all these differences can play out. Now, where should, we, now they realize, well, wait a minute, like somebody needs to be able to know what music they're gonna play, so we have to put a label on it. Where do we put the label? We can't put the label on the grooves. Do we put it in the center? Do we make it really thick and put it on the side? All of those differences show up because of the development team actually developing the product. And so there's a bunch of different elements to it, right? But all those different elements, what gives it them their significance, their meaning is that they're just a way of getting at this one invention. It's not nearly as precise as the biological analogy for many reasons, but the basic rundown is the same, okay? You can use another thing, okay? What's the difference in how they both relate to the well, for instance, the grooves are much more critical to capturing the essence than where you put the label, right? Like if you have a record, the grooves that actually record the sound. But at the end of the day, like it's not a functional record if nobody can tell what they're holding. And imagine if like, you had records, I mean, you don't use records anymore. Imagine you have records and they're just black discs and you have no way of knowing what's on it. The label needs the grooves, but the grooves are too. Well, they actually both need each other, but there is a hierarchical difference, right? It's ultimately about the grooves, but the grooves aren't very useful unless there's a label telling you what's in those grooves, right? But there's no reason to have a label unless there's grooves on it, right? Sticking a label on random pieces of black plastic, though. So it's like they're both necessary, but in different ways. And so there is kind of a hierarchical relationship. Some parts of this product are more critical and some parts are, are maybe less critical, but at the end of the day, it's all of them together that really makes it a functional reality. Okay. All right. We'll do another example of the same basic idea. When you say there, you would say some things are more essential. Is that like that they more successfully convey the essence? Yes. Which is the idea I want to get to later. Okay. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. There's an A in policy, right? Nope. No. Nope. I. Why? What? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you have a policy wonk. Comes with a brilliant proposal for how to, like, I don't know. Wow. I've not wonk? heard the wonk in, I've not heard that in so long. <laughs> okay. What's a wonk? Policy wonk, wonk is wonk somebody is like... who really understands how governments and economics work. And, like, there's a problem. Like... I have this brilliant new way of, like, solving it by designing this program. And, yeah, okay. In a very nerdy way. In a very nerdy way, right? <laughs> and they have this. And then what do they do? They get policy <laughs> wonk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And um, what do they do? They write a paper. They sure do. And is that paper contains their idea. And that paper does what in the real world? Nothing. Nothing. And then you have Congress. And Congress gets their hands on that. And then what happens? Nothing. Usually nothing. But sometimes, <laughs> at least in theory, Congress turns that paper into a complex law. Which, assuming this process worked right, should actually express and reflect that original essence, right? 
what what would the Wewan Kurishan have? You, you see this it's the same basic idea of women. This is the where the original essence is sourced. There's a way of conveying it to the existence of fire. I just made that word up. And then the existence of fire gives that essence existence, and in its existence there are different parts that function differently, and there are higher relationships between them, but in its essence it's all one and the same thing. Okay? The best and most precise analogy for how this works with souls is human procreation. But the general idea you can find in almost any concept of development. Yeah. Why is it the father's brain? Why is it the father's brain? Why isn't the mother's brain? Well, I would say it's the reverse. Okay. That the, that the mother's role is here should be fairly obvious, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's reason like, that that's just biologically, like, physically evident, right? Okay, so if you're using this model, then kind of by default, the only role the father could be playing would be this part. But, like, if you look at DNA, half of DNA is from... Right, but, DNA, but, D, but DNA is not really a good analogy for this. Like, we're, this, this model of procreation is looking at people as metaphysical beings that are just being instantiated in bodies not as purely biological thing. Because in DNA, there actually is no essence. Because, let me put it to you this way. Your DNA, two things. One, your DNA is like no one else's DNA. Or at least statistically, probably like no one else's DNA. Theoretically, it could be, but it's like no one else's DNA. So there is no such thing as a human DNA. It's just all the DNA of human beings is roughly similar enough that we can kind of group it together as a group, but there is no actual thing called human DNA. Everyone's DNA is actually distinct, number one. Number two, and this is really weird, your DNA has more in common with the female chimpanzee than it does with your father. Yeah. So if you're looking at DNA as merely encoding biological information, this whole model of thinking doesn't work. Which I'm not saying is wrong, it's just a different way of thinking, and that's why actually in, in, in biology they don't think of species as having an essence. Um, we think of, you know, systems propagating themselves and it's a different way of thinking. So if the idea is that the essence of the soul comes from the father, then why is a Jewish soul determined by the Because this is talking about, this is, this, is, this is an analogy talking about humans reproducing humans. The godly soul is an entirely different thing. He's going to get to that at the end of the chapter. So could this whole system Remember, remember in, in Titus there's actually two souls. There's a human soul and there's the animal soul and then there's also a godly soul. So we're using human procreation as an analogy of what's happening within different levels of godliness to create the godly soul. But the godly soul has actually nothing to do with your parents either way, in principle. So, but you're arguing none of the essence comes from mother. The none of the essence comes from mother, correct. I'm uncomfortable with that. I would imagine so. But like, there's no, like, like if the underlying commitment you're going to have is, is, is that, there's a, that there's a fundamental equality of all properties between men and women, then you're, like, the system, this way of thinking clearly isn't that way. So the class we just had just before yeah. said that the Jewish soul came from the mother. It doesn't really come from the mother. It comes from God. Whether you have or not is determined by your mother. The altar is going to get it at the end of the chapter. And by the way, that's something that only exists post the, the giving of the Torah. Pre the giving of the Torah, it, was, it had nothing to do with your parents' work. In principle, right. so the the like if the question is, I understand. If the question is like fundamentally, you don't like the idea that we're breaking this up into male and female roles. Well, then we're just going to have to say, well, I mean, that's the idea. You don't have to like it, but that's what it is said. If your question is you don't understand it, then I can try and explain it. But I'm not going to like try and I'm not going to argue the philosophical. Well, sure, point. I can like accept that there's different roles for males and females, but like. I don't understand why the essence has to come from the male just because there's no other purpose for the male's part in procreation. Like, that's a big assumption. Mm, does the process of elimination seem incomplete with that? Yes. The... It would, I, I guess the best way to think of it would be the other way around, which is... Which is, if you start off with the premise that God created this as to... If you start off with the premise that God created this the way humans procreate to be a model for this idea, which is the basic Kabbalistic thing, then these, these differences are, are meant to be interpreted this way. Now, if you start off, like, like there is a physical world, and now we're trying to theorize about the physical world as an isolated system. I don't know, it's an interesting question. Like, 
what's the is there a logical imperative for thinking this way or is logical or isn't there but if you start off with the premise that god created the normal mode of human procreation to involve male and female because he wanted to give a tangible example of the interaction between the source of the essence and that which gives it existence then you then the process of elimination argument would hold very valid because that's clearly what's happening in other words in Kabbalah and Chassidus, there's never a starting point where we're trying to explain the world. It's the world is set up in such a way to reflect things that we know through mystical revelation. And so if I know, if I know that I have you know, mystical idea A and mystical idea B, and that's supposed to be reflected in men and women, and I see mystical idea B in the woman, then by default, mystical idea A is in the man. Why is that by default? They could both come from the woman. No, because the, because the, I, it's because the... The idea is preceding the example. In other words, in Kabbalah, in the Kabbalah way it works is like this, yeah? I can, in Kabbalah the way it works is like this. The essence comes from Chachma, and then Malchus gives it existence. That's the idea in Kabbalah, independent of men, women, physical world. So then, when we also then say that that process is being modeled by the interactions of men and women, and all, then if the woman is clearly being the Malchus role, then the man is clearly being the Chachma role. Because... This is being modeled off of that. If you're asking me, as an entirely different matter, if I'm looking at human procreation as an isolated thing, do I have to? Do I have an imperative then to say that the essence comes from the father? I don't know. I haven't really thought about it because I don't really like. I'm not doing the, the metaphysics of the world just on its own. Okay. Um, an analogy for that would be. Um, Like, if we were to say that the mitzvah of, well, what do you call it, of shaking the lulav represents different kinds of Jews. That's our starting premise. Okay? And there are Jews who excel in both Torah and mitzvah, so that's the Esra. And there are Jews who excel in um, Hadassim. I'm sorry, there's Jews that excel in mitzvahs, and that's represented by the Hadassim. Um, and there are Jews who excel in Torah, and that's represented by the Lulav. Well, then by default, I have to say the Jews that excel in neither, that's the Aravis, because I'm setting it up to begin with that the whole, the whole physical thing is supposed to parallel this other spiritual thing. So it's not, you see know what I'm saying? Like we're starting off that spiritual speaking, there's an idea of that which houses the essence, then that conveys that essence something else that receives it and gives it its existence. If I then say, well, okay, what's the physical embodiment of that? Well, then by default, it's all it's men to women. That's that's the old that's the only like that's the only argument that I would say that is like absolutely convincing. I would go even deeper. Like if you're if you're really talking about observing the world biologically, I would make the argument that maybe the whole idea of thinking about essences might be not a good way of thinking about biology to begin with. Because it probably makes more sense it's to not. think of it as probably makes more sense to think of it as information. And you'll probably get a better biological model of the raw biology. Which is fine, it's just not a helpful analogy for God anymore. Yeah? Since this isn't about the soul, is this same mechanism used in like procreation for non Jews? Yeah. This is this is the, yeah, this is this yeah, is this, this is, is for all humans. Yeah. I would, I would go so far as to say, like, if I, if this is a, mo this is a, this is a, this is a, this is a model that many things in the world work by. Um, and human procreation is the more perfect model of it, and it's also supposed to be modeling this other spiritual idea. Okay. Yeah. Um, this notion that human procreation, like, is a is an exact model or is meant to model. It's meant to. It's done properly. Okay, so that it's meant to model the Chachma Malchus interaction. Do we only know that because the Alter Rebbe? Knows that from this, divine revelation. Like, where where does the that, notion? That, yeah, that that's that 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 there's, that's that's purely prophetic knowledge. That's not rationally derived at all. Right. Meaning, yeah. it's not like we can come up to like we can find something else and say like, well, I think this is probably meant to model that. Yeah, that's like it's it's it, it, the only way to know if something models something else is that you need to have a sense of what you're modeling and what's being uh, uh, what's being modeled. It's like if no. If, it's like if you never encountered something, then how would you know what it, what it's like? 
Right. So we, we accept that this is a good model, and that by studying this model, we learn more about the thing it's modeling. We accept that because the Alter Rebbe said it. Well, the Alter Rebbe would actually say that he's not the original source, so this is like classic Kabbalistic stuff. Is that, is that like found in earlier writings than the Tanya? Much earlier. This is found... This is found already that the, there's already, I mean, the Talmud is not exactly an overtly Kabbalistic text, but it, there's even things in the Talmud that, that speak about it. In fact, there's many things in the Talmud that make a lot more sense if you realize that it's really not talking about, it's talking about an ideal of human beings as a model for something godly rather than your generic everyday human experience. And this actually leads me to another thing which I think is important to mention, okay? One of the ways of working in the world is that what we tend to do, and this is, is that we take the world, there's the world as it is. Okay. And then we work from that to How we perceive it, and that gives, and then we use that for to figure out what should what should be. That's basically a way of looking at the world. So there's the world for whatever the world actually is. Then obviously we perceive the world in some way, right? I think all of us can realize we don't perceive all of the world, right? And then based on what we perceive in the world, that's how we start to develop our sense of what should and shouldn't be. And I mean that, but in Everything as simple as, you know, predicting like physical phenomena, like will this happen, will this drop if I let go of it, to our senses of moral rights and wrong. That's a way, that is a model. That is a way to understand, okay? This is not the, this is not, frankly, this is a, this is a by definition irreligious model. Why is this irreligious fundamentally? Because it relies on our perception, not like some sort of given knowledge. Right. A religious model would say like this. There would be God. There would be revelation. Which then is supposed to give us a sense how the world should be. And then at that point, what do you realize? That how we perceive the world and what should be, do those fit together nicely? No. There's usually conflict there. This becomes a religious model. So God, through revelation, tells us what it should be. How you perceive the world is not like that. Okay, we have a word for this, by the way, which is called exile. That's the Jewish word for that. And so then you say, okay, well, is the problem merely my perception, or is the, my perception actually based on the way the world actually is? So, and this, this is, so the Jewish model would say that, that both can be the problem. Sometimes the world is fine, it's just you're not perceiving it properly, and sometimes the world is actually... Trash. And so if the problem, so now is this, if the problem is your perception, then what do you need to change? Perception. But if the problem is the world, you need to go out and? Change the world. Change the world. Change the world. <laughs> change, you want to see, but Abraham intuited the Torah, so he went that way, right? Sort of. He, sort of. Okay. There's, Abraham, Abraham got to the point on his own. This is, Avram got on his own to this point. That, um, that the way the world should be has to come from God, but I haven't gotten that fully from God, and therefore I'm a little bit confused about things. So actually, one of the things that Avram... Right, right, too. In other words... Abraham, 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 Abraham realized that there's a God. Abraham realized that God would be the source of what should be, and he also realized that, like, he doesn't really have anywhere to go from there. Which is at that point, God actually reveals Himself to Abraham. Which is why the first story of Abraham in the Chumash is actually God revealing Himself to Abraham. Okay, because you can get to the idea that there should be a religious mindset, but to actually have a religious mindset, there needs to be at some point of a revelation, because the source of what should be is not coming from how you perceive the world. He realized that how I perceive the world can't be the basis of what should be. 
because the world as it is doesn't come from, from it, the world as it is has some source higher than my understanding. So the ultimate of what should or shouldn't be comes from a place beyond what I perceive. But didn't you perceive God? Eventually. So isn't that still moving from that side? It's like he went from as it is and he like jumped over and he was like, there's God. So Abraham, like, Abraham, <laughs> there's different versions of this, but the way, the way, the way it seems to me if you put all the different sources together, it would be like this. Abraham at age three realized that God is not part of the world. Like if you can touch it, see it, feel it, it's not God. God transcends our senses. By age of 40, he had come to a realization and, and good convincing arguments that God was the ultimate cause of what is and also the source of determining what should be transcends our ability to fully understand. Um, and therefore, there's, therefore, we have to be very humble and we can't really presume to know what God would or would not. And he had good arguments for this and he convinced a lot of people. By age 70, he experienced his first prophetic revelation. And it's only at that point that he could absolutely say, like, God wants the Jews to be in Israel, and God wants this, and God wants that. And that, like, it, it, until that point, there is, there is a total devotion to God, but that devotion is, is very much um, ambiguous because there's also recognition that until God tells me, I have no ability to really know very much what God wants. Um, and a lot of things haven't been revealed yet. But... And it's very interesting to note that when the Torah describes Avram, it does not go through all that backstory. It picks up with Hashem revealing himself to Avram, saying, go. Okay, so this is the religious mindset where you've God, you have Revelation. Okay. Now, some people's religious mindset is that part of what should be is you should ignore your rational mind. Some people think, no, the Revelation says the rational mind is important. Not getting into that, but... And that means, by the way, and this is, this is a, a hard thing, is that, and that's actually one of the reasons why Avram was called Ivri, is that a religious mindset puts you on the other side of everything else, because there's the world as it is, there's how people perceive it, and then you're standing there and says, yeah, well, just because it perceives that way, you can't use that as the basis of determining what really should be. And so this is actually very important, is that the way in the, in the I don't know, post-enlightenment world of of looking at the world and trying to draw conclusions from the world is fundamentally anti-religious. Now, if, does that mean you should ignore the world altogether? Because if the world isn't as it should be, you need to know what it is in order to fix it, right? But there's a very big difference between looking at something to, to diagnose what's wrong with it versus looking at it as, as some sort of prescription of what should be. This is why, for instance, if you were to tell me that the overall majority of people don't want to do what the Torah says they should do, the religious mindset will be, okay, well then there's something wrong with the people. Okay, now, so far that's a very easy thing to say. The one that becomes extremely difficult is when you find yourself in which group? The group <laughs> that wants to do the things the Torah says you shouldn't do. Right? It's always easier for the religious person to find the way you are not in the way God wants you to be. It's always much harder, and this is, this is what makes religion Authentic is that when you are able to identify in which sense you are not as you should be. Right? So for me to go around saying, you're not as you should be because this and this is because of the revelation, I mean, it's religious, but it's shallow and superficial. If I can look at myself and say, I'm not as I should be in some way, and then actually fix to change that, no matter how hard it is, then there's, that's more of an authentic kind of religious mindset. But, but there is always that conflict as long as the world is not as it's supposed to be. But like, you're giving all these Kabbalistic analogies with things that we find in nature, for example. So couldn't you also intuit some of those Kabbalistic truths from nature if God created it for the purpose of death? Yes, you could, provided that the world is as it's supposed to be. So which means like this. I'll give you very specific. If your experience of sexuality is exactly as God intended it to be, then you could do that. But if it's not, then no. And one of the problems is, is that for the overall majority of people, it is not. Okay? Um, there's, a, there's a verse that says, from my flesh I see God. And there's a Hasidic saying, which means you have to scrub the flesh. Which means that, yes, you could work backwards, but it's provided that everything is the way God intends it to be. But we know that God didn't, A, make everything the way he intended it to be. He left some things to be fixed. The most obvious example is, is Brismila. 
that when a, a Jewish boy is born, right, we say he's not as God intended on a, a physical level, right? And then you have on top of that, there's the whole idea of the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which made things worse. So God didn't even create things as they should be to begin with, and then people went on and made it worse, which means you have to, which means you can't use things as they are to automatically to it. Somebody who was kind of in their own little corner of the world made everything as they should be and is perceiving it correctly could, but the only way they would know that is they'd also have to have prior knowledge of what should or shouldn't be, so it's kind of redundant, if you get what I'm saying. But yes, I mean, there's no way around this. That the, the, the Tanya is a religious book written from a religious perspective based on earlier religious revelations. There's no... Yeah? Um, no, of course, Okay. Jenna, question. No. <laughs> you want to do it? I mean, let's be honest. Like, I want you to come with a rational argument why it's important that I wear these strings. I would be very impressed if you could. <laughs> like, like, look at the world and figure out why it's important that Jews wear strings. Like, it's kind of. And there's hard. a practical argument. Which is? Which is, when you wear those strings, you're reminded of your relationship with God every time you notice them. Okay, so why do I have to wear these strings? Why can't I do something else? That question I cannot answer. But yet, so, so the idea that I have to wear the strings, right? I can come with a rational argument why I should have rituals that remind me of God, right? But then it should be open-ended as to what those rituals are as long as they serve the purpose, right? But that's not how tzitzis work. Right. So, so it's not an argument for tzitzis. It's a good argument for religious rituals as a generic thing, as long as there's some kind of cultural norm of religious ritual law, any religious religious ritual will work. Is that a hold? What? Strings. No, they're called apis. It's like an in-between category. Which is you can understand some general idea about them, but you can't really understand their specifics. Was that the general idea that we understand? Yeah. But it's clear that, that the rules of teachers don't work that aren't aren't limited to that general principle. Yes. When people uh, in our time have this revelation of like I feel like I'm missing something spiritually or like the whole hippie movement of like there's got to be something metaphysical out there. Mm -hmm. Some sort of value system we're missing. Is that similar to what Avraham experienced? It's similar but very distorted. How so? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you an analogy. Okay? Most people can be aware that they're lacking nutrients when they're really lacking nutrients. They get hungry. Okay. Do most people then process that as what I really need now is, you know, the particular kind of food that will give give me my nutritional lackings? Or most people we trash. Right, we reach right. So there is the sense that I'm lacking, and the lack is in the food category. We're all pretty good at, but getting any more specific than that, most people are really bad at. So Avram was really in tune with what it was he was lacking? Yeah, Avram, Avram was a unique person because Avram had a very clear sense of dismissing what wasn't it. What made Avram special is that he was able to figure out very clearly. So he's like, he asks his father, where's God? And his father says, the sun. And he worships the sun and he says, no, no, that's not doing it for me. Now, most people don't give up sun worship in a day. Yeah. Like, you can't sincerely, like, think about it. How, like, what do you have to go through to sincerely worship the sun as God and then discover it's not God and abandon it completely all within the span of one day? You have to be very attuned to what you're looking for. I feel like children are actually better suited to that. Children are much more flexible with, like, accepting and giving up ideas. So, in a sense, he retained that throughout his entire life. That's really cool. And he was, he was, so when someone told him that, you know, a certain political structure is the ultimate thing. He would like devote himself entirely to it and with the span of like hours or days, he would be able to see right through it that this is not the ultimate. And that's why he was able to, by the age of three, which is really phenomenal, by the age of three realize that if you can touch it, you can see it. If it's tangible to human senses, it's not the ultimate. So pre-revelation, he just knew that nothing he had encountered was it. God is transcendent. And, and what we have in our generation, generally speaking, is people go like, I need spirituality, and then settle for something that's not it. Yeah, they settle for it. They, they, they know it's not, you know, a house in the suburbs with a white picket fence and, uh, and uh, you know, a car and two garages, right? They know it's not that. 
So, so the move they right? So if I can move away from that, then right, it's like most of us, like when we eat junk food, we're like, okay, well, I'm not hungry anymore, so that must have been it. But <laughs> okay. So the the, the 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 yeah, it's not it's not it's not a bad thing. It's just very unrefined and very unsophisticated, well, and we we settle. I mean, think about it. We all feel the need for friendship. We're all lonely fundamentally, right? And yet most of us settle for relationships which do actually a really bad job of meeting our needs for friendship very long term. Mild acquaintances that don't really show up when you need them. Um, people who are on social media and they get a lot of like, I like on Facebook or whatever it is. And then you think about it, like, what is this need? What would really meet this need? You know, some people are... Really meet that need? What would really meet the need for friendship? If it's not Facebook friends. <laughs> Somebody who cares about you regardless of what your flaws are. And you care about them regardless of what their flaws are. It doesn't necessarily mean you enjoy hanging out with each other. Really? Really. Like, like that's like, it, it, it's not, it's, I mean, it's not the most relevant factor. Because if you really care about somebody no matter what their flaws and I really care what their flaws are, like, the fact that you can find each other annoying or frustrating to deal with, you still won't feel lonely. You still won't feel isolated. It's a, it's a, that's so cool. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying it's good not to enjoy being around each other. I'm just saying, like, yeah. that, the being around, like, how many people you're around doesn't really deal with that. Loneliness. It's like, yeah. how much am I at your core of your life? How much are you in the core of my life? And, like, if you people, you know, if people like that and you're comfortable with it, then you really don't feel, you know, the, the, the old way of saying this is like, you know, if you're in trouble, who could you call that would come regardless of what was going on, mm-hmm. right? And who would you go to regardless of what's going on? Who would you drop everything for? If you have people like that in your life and they, have, and they've, they know that they've done all, you, people like that don't really feel lonely. And people can have that relationship long distance, even with letters and stuff. It's happened historically. Right? By the way, that's also what it means to have like a really good relationship with God. That you feel like you and God have that kind of relationship. That He's cool with you despite your flaws, even when you don't enjoy hanging out with Him. And even when He doesn't enjoy <laughs> hanging out with you. <laughs> but like, He'll come running if you call, and you'll come running to Him when He calls. That's doesn't always mean you like you like what each other are doing. Right. <laughs> All right. Can I ask yes. a question? Yes. But, uh, back to the idea about looking at the world as it is. Yeah. Is there a ro- well, Is there a problem with looking at like trying to understand the world as it is? Like, for example, understanding like laws of physics to then try. It's not really in the same arrow to look at something how something should be but it's just like looking at so, it so, there, so there's a lot belying that so here's the thing let's take the world as it is is that every time I've ever dropped anything it has fallen right mm-hmm. that's the world as it is right we can go with that now I perceive that as that there's some kind of now rule that says that when you let go of things they're gonna fall right mm-hmm. now that's where the problem is it is still like there's a should be in there because there's a there's an implicit should be now here's the thing I'm not going so far to say that there's no laws of nature, but maybe the word law is the issue, right? One of the things that God has revealed to us is that there are miracles, which means that the fact that this should drop is true, but it's not, it doesn't have that same absoluteness that I would get from just my previous observations of the world, right? So as someone who believes that God revealed the truth of the Torah, I would have to say like this, that if I let go of this, um, there's kind of two things. There's what should happen given the nature of the, of the world, and there's what could happen given the fact that God is not bound by that nature. Mm-hmm. Which means, and now the question is, well, which one should I focus on? And the Torah tells me that you are not allowed to rely on miracles, but you are not allowed to um, give up hope that one will occur. So which means like this. Should I walk off a 10-story building saying God could do a miracle. No. However, if a 10-story building is collapsing on me, should I assume that I'm for sure going to die? No. no. I, I should, right? And the way the Talmud puts it is that even if the sword is on your neck, you're not allowed to give up hope of a miracle. 
So that's so you see what I'm saying? It's 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 not that this idea of should be creeps into everything. That's what I was talking about earlier about your mental models. Like it, it really does. And so let me give you a practical example. Are you allowed to give up hope of surviving an illness if the doctors say there's no cure? From from the perspective of Judaism. You're not allowed to give up hope. But now is the corollary to that that means you just should never listen to doctors? No. If the doctors say this is the natural way to heal you, then you're supposed to go to the natural way to heal you. I don't mean natural medicine, I'm just saying like... But if the doctors say there's no natural way to cure you, you're not supposed to say, well, then that means I can't be cured. Because mm-hmm. miracles are still possible. But you can't get that from just perceiving the world as it is. Right? So when you talk about natural laws of physics, it, so it, it's like, very sensitive what you mean by natural laws, what you mean by nature. And, mm-hmm. So is there like a danger in just like intellectually exploring those things that... A danger is a very good word. Something that's dangerous doesn't mean it will hurt you. It just means... Right. There's a high be... likelihood of hurting you unless you're very careful and know what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't... Which is why these are not things the Torah prohibits. It's just that the Torah puts very like limitations on perspectives on. But there are things that are actually just the Torah prohibits out. And the Torah doesn't prohibit like doing experiments and studying medicine. It doesn't prohibit those things. Mm-hmm. But it is true that if you immerse yourself totally in one way of trying to perceive the world, you become blinded to the ultimate that should be is not coming from this. Yeah. yeah. In Rabbi Breitowitz's class, like contemporary halachic stuff, we were talking about Agunot and that whole situation. He mentioned the story of someone who was in the World Trade Center during 9-11 who called his rabbi to tell him, I'm in this building, I'm going to die. Is that, like, wrong? Like No. So, so how do you reconcile, you know, on, on some level he should have not believed that he was certainly going to die, and on some other level he called that's his rabbi very, to say, my so, wife is single. So that's a very good question. Um, at the end of class, all I'm going to tell you is that um, this is why the Torah requires us to develop a very mature mind, that we can appreciate different perspectives of things at the same time. Because if he didn't call, then he would be relying on a miracle, at his wife's expense, by the way. But on the other hand, is he allowed to experience or um, the, 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 the sense of hopelessness? No, he's supposed to, he's supposed to not experience that. So how do you bring, get to the point where you're not experiencing hopelessness and at the same time you're taking that, those practical measures? That requires a mature mindset that can realize that things have exist on different levels. And that's, that's part of the, the challenge of being a religious person is not really keeping Shabbos. I mean, keeping Shabbos can be hard. The real challenge of being a religious person is to hold all of these different things together in a way that they don't just, they don't, not only they don't tear you apart, but they actually can be integrated with each other. In some way, is it like hope for the best, plan for the worst? Or like, no? Um... It, it's, it's more like it's more like it's more like don't rely on miracles but believe but in don't them. but 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 don't fall into despair it's more like that and it's like it, it's yes yeah, I mean the praying is also an issue that comes from this right in, in, in you know when you pray what you what are you doing you're trying to to to, to have a discussion with God about you know, how the world should be one way, but it isn't another way, and, like, that needs to reconcile. But if, if your whole sense of what should be only arrives from what is, then it's fundamentally a secular model of the world. And you could be an observant, halakhli practicing Jew, but you're not religious in your mind. Um, you're welcome. Next week, we'll have to keep going, <laughs> do the other half of this analogy. <laughs> Yeah. Uh-huh.